I didn't have any money. The company had no money at all. Then I told to my employees that, hey, I can I pay you this month, but if you still believe in the fishery, I will assure that the money will come next month. So please stay in the fishery and come back again next month. And surprisingly, uh, the day after they, they came back. Jibran Husaifa is the founder of eFishery, a fish tech startup providing end-to-end solutions for fish and shrimp farmers in Indonesia. In this episode, we cover how Jibran ended up becoming a founder, the unique coastline and aquaculture opportunity in Indonesia, why people should be more contrarian when starting a business, and how he wants to scale eFishery going forward. Let's head over to our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Their first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. Their second mission is to create a completely new way for companies to reach their investors and vice versa. The app is available for both iOS and Android, and stay tuned for additional features in the future. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more. They prioritize requested companies, which you can easily do in the app. They have a lot more in store for the back half of the year, so make sure to follow them on Twitter at Quarter App. So check out Quarter, spelled Q U A R. TR, and you can find the links in the description. All opinions expressed by Christopher Warname or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Warname. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Warname as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Welcome back, everybody. Super excited to be joined by Gibran. And Gibran, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to, to join you. It's an honor to be here. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Can you tell me a bit about your upbringing? Where did you grow up and how did your upbringing look like? Well, I, I grew up in Jakarta. I uh, was born and raised in Jakarta. It's a, it's a big city here in, in Indonesia. But I, I grew up from a very humble family. So it's a nearby the slum area, uh, at least. So get, coming from that background. And I spent my childhood all in Jakarta. I moved to Bukasi and then I studied uh, in Top Tech University in Bandung. Uh, but because I struggled away throughout my childhood, uh, my mother and my father had a small... Had a, has a, had a very small business to to survive. So I had a small and a very little experience on helping out uh, my mother on the on her small rice uh, like rice store uh, food rice vendors that selling selling it in the wet market. So I grew up in that area that is very entrepreneurial but very uh, humble, uh, and I learned a lot from from my experience and my childhood. What would you say early on was your biggest passion? Did you have any specific passions you wanted to pursue growing up at the early age? On the early, early age, not in particular, uh, but I always liked to learn. Uh, so I, I remember when my uh, mother described me as my childhood, I was quite a quirky one because you know all, all of the uh, other kids, you know, they play around outside, but I 
read newspapers since I was uh, I was four years old, uh, just enjoying what what was there in newspaper. I didn't I didn't understand what what's, what was there, but but I enjoy you know uh, grasping new information. And at some time, uh, I woke up at one a.m. and then opening my books uh, and and just uh, getting done with the with the task. Even there's no there was no homework at all. So I was enjoy working. I aspire to be uh, in uh, to be a doctor as most of the kids back then, right? But I realized that I I had uh, no talent to be a doctor. But uh, later in the college when I actually found out my, my passion and it shaped me to, to be the, the way I am right now. Can you tell me about uh, a bit about how you ended up studying biology? Because I think you said it was a bit of an accident how you ended up. You sort of wanted to take it because you, you would get a good grade on it. What was that story about? Well, particularly for the biology, it was not an accident. For aquaculture, it was an accident. So uh, we can uh, share a story later on. But particularly for the biology, I was... Quite fascinated by uh, about the biology, but I really like biology. But my high school teacher was very inspiring about uh, about it, and he told me uh, when he told us me a story and then the theory about what happens in the photosynthesis, which is very complex processes, right? And then he elaborated that wait, that's what happens on the every cells and every mitochondria, and then you you can you imagine that's a lot of chlorophylls or each of the leaf. And then if you see how many uh, trees are there, then that's a miracle. So that's the magic of life. Uh, and you can learn so much from life that you can implement to your own and get the wisdom from that. So I was always you know, a philosophical one and I found it very philosophical and very inspiring. And that what got me to be uh, a biologist. I actually had uh, two interests back then, either going to the computer science, which, might, which maybe I should have done it, <laughs> or go, go to biology. Uh, but uh, I, I enjoy nature more uh, because in the biology, I know that uh, you know, I would go to the, uh, to, to, uh, the mountains and go to the oceans. Uh, that's what, what I was excited for. And I decided to join biology. And you know, the aquaculture story, then we can uh, do, it, do it really uh, soon right now. But that's the accident. Yeah, but so, so at this time, I guess you, you also started to have a farming project on the side, farming catfish. Is that right? Yes, yes. So that came from the accident part of the uh, of getting the aquaculture. So uh, my focus in, in biology is getting uh, a minor in ecology, uh, particularly terrestrial ecology. So it's not, it has nothing to do with aquaculture. But there's one optional class in aquaculture. It's only three credits. Uh, and, and it's very famous class uh, throughout the university because everyone can uh, get in the class and, and it's called package A. So as long as you're there, you sit there and then you, 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 you present and then you, you, you'll be guaranteed to get an A. And that was the only reason why I got in aquaculture class, but it was so crowded uh, of a class. But, my, but again, the, the professor was so, so inspiring and so passionate about aquaculture and convinced me enough that the future of uh, aquaculture is on, uh, the future of food is on, on aquaculture. And particularly told me a story about uh, how catfish sector in Vietnam is, was, has been very growing, right? But particularly in the Pangasins. And Pangasius was, was growing very fast. And then Pangasius and all of the whole catfishes is, is, uh, is very famous in Indonesia. Uh, but Vietnam produced it, but they tried to export it uh, to 
US and Europe, and they couldn't export at the very beginning because there was channel catfishing in the US. And then my professor mentioned that they they rebranded it. They do they filleted it and rebranded it as a dory fish. And it's, it was now one of the uh, back then one of the highest consumption for freshwater fish in in the US and Europe. And it was so exciting. And what he told me after that then, hey, uh, Indonesia, you see that catfish is very low level. Uh, it's only uh, small food vendors buying it. Uh, so it's a cheap uh, fish. But you'll see over the next five to 10 years, catfish will also uh, go into the upper class. It definitely will be there. Uh, so it's up to you whether you want to be part of it, uh, the catfish revolution. And that it was so inspiring. It really got to my heart. Exactly after that class, I, I opened my, my own catfish farm. Uh, I rented out one pond, which is very, very cheap to, to rent one pond in, in Indonesia. And then, yeah, uh, it got me to, uh, to then uh, had a catfish, fish, catfish farming business uh, as a side business back then when I was in college. I think it was second or third year in college. How long are the cycles on the catfish, like from you start producing it, from you can sell it, right? It's, it's around two to three months. It's a, it's a pretty quick. No, it's super interesting. We need to talk a bit about aquaculture in Indonesia because obviously I'm from Norway, so I have great exposure to the salmon industry, of course. But Indonesia is such a huge country for aquaculture, like the second largest, I guess, in production. So how would you summarize the potential or the current state of the aquaculture industry, but also maybe as interesting, the enormous potential for growing the aquaculture industry in Indonesia? Yeah, uh, and that, uh, I think what, what that... Uh, got me in the aquaculture. I mean, definitely the, the accident was there, but what, what made me stick to the aquaculture is because of the massive opportunity of this, of the sector itself. Uh, because Indonesia, as you mentioned, is already the second largest aquaculture producers. I think in terms of the uh, value of the market, it's a $10 billion market uh, already. So it's a huge, huge uh, numbers. Uh, and we have 3.5 million of fish farmers in Indonesia. So a lot of fish farmers with more than 20 million of fish farms. So can you imagine a lot of fish farms? So if you go to any rural areas, unlike uh, salmon farming, there is no way that is very advanced, very uh, highly consolidated, uh, large scale. Indonesia is very, it's a backyard farming. Uh, it's all across uh, the country uh, and everywhere. So I think the fragmentation of the market is challenging for the market to grow uh, by itself, but it's also a big opportunity because there, if we can uh, provide some consolidation to that market, then uh, we can create a really strong and sustainable growth on top of the market itself. Uh, but the other thing that I, I was very uh, keen about, about the sector and what made me stay is the fact that Indonesia, if you think about it, is actually has the largest potential for aquaculture because we already the second largest, uh, just below China. But if we see in terms of the coastal line, Indonesia has the second longest coastal line after Canada, but Canada's coastal line is not as fertile as Indonesia because in Indonesia, in, in any coastal line, you can farm a fish or farm a shrimp, uh, essentially, because it's, it's so fertile. So we technically has the longest fertile coastal line for aquaculture. So, so that's one. And the second, if you see the big aquaculture countries like India and China, they produce a lot of fish, but only in certain region, which is on the subtropical one, right? uh, on the southern part of it, because the rest of the country is a four seasons. Country. In Indonesia, you can farm a fish all year round uh, and farm a shrimp all year round, which means that 
when if we're utilizing all of the potential that we have, we can be the largest aquaculture co uh, country in the world. And that that's the fact. And I, I read a study that we're only utilizing seven to eight percent of the total aquaculture potential, which means that we can grow ten times in there. So there will only be an upside of aquaculture market in Indonesia. And of course, aquaculture itself is the fastest growing sector right now. So combined combination of the sector of aquaculture and the in Indonesia is the aquaculture market and then the tech part of it, then it's all upside for if we combine it in, in one strategy. And that's uh, also one of the few reasons why I started with Fisher. Yeah, that's super interesting. Just uh, one final question on, on the aquaculture summary. So what are the biggest species uh, farmed and do you think that will change or is like the biggest species now of shrimp and some types of fish is going to beat out all the way around or is it a development and what people tend to farm? Yeah, in terms of the volume right now, uh, uh, people farm tilapia, uh, uh, catfish, and carp as the top three uh, commodities by volume. But it's consumed domestically and it's a, it's a low value uh, products. Uh, but that's why by value, it's actually shrimp uh, that is up there. But in total, shrimp is only uh, taking, I think, 10, 15% uh, 10, of total volume, uh, but contributing to uh, to uh, close to 30% of total value uh, and, and currently the largest export uh, contribution for the whole seafood, not just in aquaculture. Uh, but yeah, uh, and in terms of how the market will change, I think uh, if we see how uh, China is evolving on their consumption behavior, uh, initially they really consume a lot of uh, tilapia, but right now they're already net in, importer of uh, seafood because they're uh, eating a lot of salmon, eating a lot of Pacific lobster because the economy and their uh, purchasing power is increased. And we can expect uh, pretty much the same. I think we can either switch, shift from uh, low value products uh, to high value products because the changing behavior of the local consumption or the, the involvement for us in the global trade uh, market. So. I think we, over the next, uh, really, uh, I'm talking about the long term uh, right now, like 10, 20 years, uh, we will see more farming in the Baramundi grouper and other high value tropical uh, fish compared to Nutilapia, Pandasius, and, uh, and carp, the way that it is right now, that is consumed domestically in low value. So take us back to the moment you decided to start eFishery. Obviously, we talked a bit about your background, your studying, and this enormous opportunity. But what was it like when you decided to say, okay, I'm going to start this company, and this is how I'm going to build it going forward? Uh, so when I, when I started eFishery, I didn't have a plan, any plan to start eFishery. When I was graduated in 2012, I own and operate 76 uh, catfish farms, which is not bad, but not good at all. Uh, but I, I dreamed to have a thousand pounds. Uh, by myself. So I tried to learn from a lot of, uh, from many uh, fish farmers that had, had more experience than me. Uh, from that discussion with uh, that fish farmers, and I remember vividly that one uh, fish farmer that I uh, met already owned a thousand tons and operated a thousand tons. Then I asked to him about uh, what's currently, uh, what was currently his biggest problems and biggest challenge. And, and he mentioned that the biggest problems is on the feeding cost. Uh, because the feed cost is 70 to 90% of the total cost. And it's done manually by labor. And because you own a thousand ton, it's not standardized at all. Uh, some labor is really disciplined, but the other labor is too lazy uh, or, or even too passionate and, and overfeeding the fish. And sometimes 
the other labor still the feed and sell it to the other one. So there's no standard on providing the, the feed itself. And from that discussion, I impulsively uh, pitch an idea to, to, the, to him. Hey, what if I can build a, a machine that you can feed your, your fish to your smartphone and you can control it? It's a very uh, is, uh, impulsive uh, idea. And he was so excited. And then what he, his response after that uh, convinced me to at least try it out. Uh, he said that, hey, if your product can actually uh, effective, then all of my pawn will use your technology. And I remember, well, well he has a thousand pawn. That, that's a lot. And it's coming from one farmer. And back from that discussion, I, I, I tried to calculate how many pawns are actually in Indonesia. And it's massive. It's tens of millions of pawns. And no one is, is, is doing it at all. Because uh, when I try to do, to do my own research, when salmon farming has their, is, their own technology, but definitely not applied in Indonesia and not applied for small-scale uh, fish farming. So I took an inspiration from that and to figure out whether I can build some technology for small-scale fish farming in Indonesia and, and the other uh, uh, region as well, because with the market is there, no one is doing it. Uh, so uh, then I started doing a prototype uh, and built a very scrappy prototype for the first two to three months and built it by myself. It was an SMS-based uh, feeding machine. So then that's when I, I built the first prototype and then I brought to many farmers and then many farmers were very excited about, uh, about it. And then, oh, well, this is excited, I want to order it. And then when I had enough order, uh, then I, uh, I had the, uh, the, you know, the, the whole uh, uh, conviction, okay, I think I, I should start it. But the other interesting part of it, and when I want to start it, I live on the state, same dorm with a friend of mine, which, was, uh, which already started an e-commerce company. And it was pretty small. He closed a seat round uh, and, and, and want to raise a series A round back then because 10 years ago, it was so early uh, for the tech scene in, in Indonesia. Uh, right now, uh, his company is already you know, unicorn and already IPO. So it's a very famous company here in Indonesia called Bukalapak. But we were very small and we live on the same dorm. And then I, I, had, uh, I asked about uh, his insight. Hey, I want to start this business. What do you think? And he tried to convince me to start my own e-commerce company, but I'm, I'm not interested in e-commerce. I'm interested in this. What do you think? Hey, maybe you can think about how to put an internet for your device and then build an internet business on top of it. Then I learned about, a lot about internet business. And that, that came, you know, the e-fishery part of it. You know, like, like the, the initially it was EI fishery, like iPhone, but I want to make it different. That's why I created e fishery because it's more like electronics part of it, like email. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, and and that's I brainstorm uh, to figure out whether I can build an internet business for fish farming, but started off from a device, which is an IoT, the Internet of Things for that, and. And yeah, uh, and the rest of the history, we, we started building the first prototype and then creating a new business model and then uh, build a, a, like a true end-to-end -end ecosystem uh, right now. I guess when you started this project, it was important to make it affordable, right? Because that has to be a very important factor to selling it. So how was it to create something that created value, but at the same time was affordable enough that you get the farmers on? I guess that's what's the challenge. Exactly. That's, that's really good questions because... Uh, for automatic feeding solutions, it was not the first way. Uh, and I, when, when I did my own research, and, and, and some uh, are building maybe a better technology, but 
with the price uh, point like like five thousand and six thousand dollar per unit, and and for that price point, no farmers would would buy it at all. So I tried to figure out whether I think the the basic if I would like to build a technology, it needs to be radically affordable, so snow scale farmers to uh, use it. So I tend I tried to not offer engineering any product and solutions that I that I built. That's why the first prototype is very scrappy. I use a secondhand. Uh, uh, plastic drum uh, that the farmers usually use and, and aluminum. Then I create a very simple sensors using vibration-based sensors instead of uh, hydrophone sensors that might be more expensive. Uh, then uh, initially uh, we we didn't even have a smartphone. I used a small like calculator and doing that. And the other expensive part is the connectivity. I mean, a lot of uh, existing players using radio frequency, which is expensive. Then you need to set up uh, and a computer is also uh, expensive. Then I, I tried to strip it down by creating a connectivity to SMS gateway. And then uh, later uh, build it to a peer-to-peer Wi-Fi uh, that connected directly to the smartphone. So, uh, so I think try to rebuild it from uh, what the farmers really need and what, what's actually not need it and we can change it and find a cheaper alternative. So that's one uh, that we can do that. So when we launched it, the price point was only like $500, $600 per unit compared to $5,000 and $6,000 uh, that is widely available right now. Uh, but that's one thing. Right? Uh, but the second thing uh, is not just changing the, our approach on the product, but our approach on the business model. So when we uh, tried it out, it's still a bit more expensive to refine, particularly they, they're not willing to pay for $500, $600 for a product that they've never used before. And they've been doing it for decades, right? For 10, 20 years. And, and it's hard to, uh, to change their, their mindset. So we had a business model in 2015 that we launched. We call it uh, feeding as a service. So with the feeding as a service model, uh, they don't need to pay uh, for the device. Uh, it's like a rental model. So they pay around $30, $20 or something per month uh, to use this product. And that's radically affordable for them. Uh, and, and, and yeah, and that's how we get a lot of users coming in because uh, the product and also the, the business model, uh, that the uh, pricing model that we offer to them is radically affordable. So cool. And another interesting part, I guess, for, for the people to, to know is that the return on investment they get, because obviously before this, it was very, very labor intensive. You maybe didn't use the resources as efficiently as you could, right? So I think you, you have spoken on it before, but the return, the return on the investment for farmers gives them more opportunity to grow in a sustainable way and also scale their businesses. In, in, in case of where you're going right now, I think what's interesting, I think there is like a, a saying that in Asia, they're more good at building sort of these super apps, which cover all types of verticals. And I think when you're spoken about the vision for e-fishery, it's basically to create a super solution for everything you need from feed to financing, etc. Can you explain what the dream scenario is for e-fishery right now and how you want to be like the number one stop for everything a farmer needs in their life? I think at, at the very early stage of our company, it has been our dream. Uh, so when we build a roadmap about the product, uh, there are three layers of it. So the first layer is on the device, just get a lot of devices deployed. And the second part is uh, capture the data. From the device, we can get a lot of data and add more data that we can capture. And the third part is marketplace. 
So we didn't know what we 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 would do back then. Uh, but that that has been the vision. However, uh, to build uh, an end-to-end -end solutions, we needed a density. That's why we, we waited for six years. I think we started in 2013. And then we, we just uh, did a pilot for the end-to-end -end solutions in 2019, because that's when we have viable uh, density. Uh, and it's also the reason why, uh, like many uh, IoT devices are trying to be a multi-countries multi uh, uh, company, right? They're selling oh, in 20 countries, in, in five countries, and in, in 10 countries. But if you're only focusing in Asia, because we know that we don't want to be like a device business. It's not a, a, a hardware business, but it's actually a, a, an ecosystem business that needs density. So that's we, what, how we focus and crack to capture the volume. So when we have you know, thousands and tens of thousands of funds using it and, and, and devices deployed, then we started building it in 2019. Uh, the way that we started, I think, I think it's quite no brainer because it's a feeding machine. We know uh, how many feet that they're using. And the farmers also uh, inform us through the app what brand of feed that they're using and what SKUs. And then we started selling feed to the farmers. But it's not just like a pure marketplace that we trade uh, we, we, we trade the feed to the farmers, but we need to create a certain efficiency to the supply chain. And the way that we uh, do it right now is the, it usually small scale farmers, they buy to the feed retail, retail side. So the feed stores, feed dealers in the retail price, because they only have small scale, uh, small quantity. What we're doing is we aggregate, let's say a thousand ton using X brand of feed uh, and instead of them buying to the feed dealers, we, we will have an aggregated volume built, and we will purchase directly to the feed manufacturers. And the best thing of it that we can ship it on the day that the farmers need it, because we know all of the data, so we can ship it on demand. So we are like a feed distributor, but we, without owning any inventory, because we can have the data and build it just in time on demand model. So that's one when we started doing it. And we scaled it out uh, pretty quickly in 2019. Uh, and when we did sell uh, the feed to the farmers, a lot of our farmers asked whether they can buy the feed on credit and pay after harvest, which is quite common practice here in Indonesia. You get the feed and pay after harvest after you sell the fish. Uh, but we didn't want to do it by ourselves because we didn't have enough capital to do so. But we tried to figure out, hey, can we solve it? Uh, okay, uh, do we have the data to solve it? And then we have, Actually, the data, we have the harvest data, we have the feed data, all the data information. That, then we built some sort of like credit scoring on top of the data that we work with the financial institutions so that the financial institution can provide some sort of like PNPL model for the farmers to buy the feed on credit. And then we create this as a whole ecosystem that we call infantry model. So that's an input marketplace that the farmers can buy everything on credit with the financing. But it's not just about the marketplace and ecosystem, but it started by having the data from uh, from them. And then uh, that's when we focus on the input. After that, uh, we did the same thing, but for the output, because uh, uh, we know when they will harvest the pick and how much, because we know the feed and we you know the FCR, we can predict, you know, the stock density and stuff. We can, okay, roughly predict, I think they will harvest in the month in two tons. Uh, and we did uh, by pre-sell their fish before it's even harvested. So let's say one pond will harvest three tons of fish over the next three weeks. Today, we will put it in our marketplace. Then the buyers can pre-purchase it before it's even harvested. Then we 
uh, we can get you know bias to its to returns of quota, then we have it from the products. So yeah, entry ecosystem has been there, but the use cases uh, uh, came because we tried to solve what what are the farmers' problems right now. And currently, it's not just a dream because it's it has been built as an entry ecosystem right now. Uh, if we uh, currently managing in uh, like 240,000 farms right now in Indonesia. And we're currently the largest feed distributor in Indonesia and also the, the largest uh, financier uh, and also the uh, the biggest fish supplier without owning and operating any single one. And that's kind of the, you know, the model and the dream uh, for us to build it. Super impressive. Well, what has been your biggest lessons after you know funding this company? How was it easy to get fundraising in the aquaculture space, or was it a, a challenge to get the right investors on board? It was definitely a challenge not to get the right investor on board, to get any investor on board. <laughs> I think, uh, like like we started very early in 2013, uh, and particularly in, in Indonesia, it was just the beginning of all of the tech investments uh, coming. So they invested a lot in, in e-commerce, invested in fintech, invested in right hailing, and, and those type of companies absorb many, many capital uh, from the consumer side of it. But, uh, and when we started building it and pitched to the investors, I, mean, I, don't, I don't see any reason why investors want to invest in us. Because if you are investors, you know, uh, uh, among other consumer tech uh, e-commerce company, right, Allen company that has uh, some other comparables and benchmark in the other market, this small uh, aquaculture technology company that is building a hardware solution for people in the rural area is definitely not so appealing. So they first they don't get about the sector at all, and they know that we have a hardware component, which is a risk uh, and more capital intensive. And third, that we're selling to the rural area that needs a lot of growth, uh, not sorry, a lot of education, that you can just hack it and get uh, a, a short-term uh, growth on your top line and revenue compared to if you just invest in, in a pure uh, consumer uh, uh, company. So we had, a really, really hard time uh, to convince any investors. I can say that 99.9% investors that I pitched to rejected us. And hey, well, I don't believe in your sector, right? We don't invest in traditional, we don't invest in hardware, all of reasons. But I think, yeah, it's not convincing and I can understand their point of view. So we were lucky enough that through some luck that we were connected with Aquaspar, uh, that, that the only company that understand about how the aquaculture is, is really a creative sector. And then, and simply because of that thesis, they wanted to invest in us. And, and then we, we had one other local investors to invest in us uh, in the seed round because Aquaspark was there. And same with the Series A, we were struggling to raise the Series A because it took us three plus years to build the, group, the strong growth uh, because it was uh, compared to you know, software companies that, is, that can build it really strong growth in one year. Then it was not so appealing, but the, uh, yeah, of course, from, again later around, and then we can convince some of the uh, local tech thesis investors to build it. Uh, only after Series B and the Series C that we raised, that finally we get more appealing because uh, we, when we started to hardware, no one uh, believed in the hardware and the IoT part of it. And then when I 
a dream about hey, this hardware can recapture the data and then the data can build a marketplace. It's all hypothetical and they don't invest in you know, hypothetical business that is too risky for them. But once we build this in the service B, we already established an end-to-end -end ecosystem. But finally, we speak their languages. Uh, so, you know, the uh, input marketplace is the e-commerce part of it. Like the output marketplace is a, a group buying social commerce part of it, you know. Uh, and then the fin financing is a fintech part of it. So we speak their language and they can see that what we invested, build the foundation over the first six years can actually bring a very strong unit economics and very, very strong growth after, afterwards. And they see the growth and, and finally, we, right now we're in a very, uh, in a much better position uh, in the market in terms of the fundraising processes. And I think it's also changed the perception uh, on the market and hopefully officially contribute small part of it because uh, uh, we, we can see like the traditional thesis, tech thesis that only invest in the consumers right now if they ask what they're, if we ask them what they're focused, they they put aquaculture uh, in one of the key sectors that they would like to invest in the region, which I think uh, is a massive improvement compared to uh, nine years ago when we started. Definitely. I, I read a Twitter thread you made after securing a round and you said that people need to to dare to be contrarian and not just copy other ideas and expand them you know, to their own country. And maybe that's a big lesson. I mean, it's, obviously it's been a super hard journey, but I mean, that's the reward you get afterwards. If you dare to be contrarian and maybe scale a local problem, it can be super rewarding if you just manage to get through it. And maybe more people should also view it in that way and not just copy an idea in another country and take it to their own country. Yep, hopefully. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so just some final questions. I mean, so can you tell me about the, what's, what do you think has been your hardest personal challenge on this journey? Has it been to scaling the team? Has it been the funding side? Where do you think you have faced the most challenges for yourself as a founder? I think depending on the, uh, on, on the stage of the company. Uh, but, but so far, if you ask me what, what, what is the hardest part of it, it's on the two problems at all. But the first problems is on, on convincing the farmers. That was so hard uh, because as you see on the farmers, if, you, if we pitch the farmers, we're, uh, especially back then when we were uh, simply an IoT company, right? We built a cloud-based, mobile-based IoT solution for uh, smallholder farmers that don't have any mobile phone. And they didn't know cloud. The cloud is something in the sky. So they, they really, what's, what's this? And, and they've been doing it for 20 years, 30 years, doing traditional way. So it was so hard for us to convince it. That's why on the early, early part of our uh, journey, uh, we, we struggled to get uh, uh, an adoption. I think many uh, similar aquaculture agency companies also uh, face the same, uh, the same problems and same challenges. And, but it was also the biggest learning for me because the way that we build it is not just refining a technology and refining the pitch, but uh, actually refining the way that we build the community. Because my biggest epiphany uh, is the first 10 customers, I was the salesperson myself. So I brought this feeder on the back of my motorbike and then I go to pond by pond uh, every day on the daily basis uh, until finally, after six months, I got an order from, from uh, one of them. So it was not as easy as I thought it would be. Uh, but the first 10 customers that uh, wanted to uh, use our product uh, told, told me that, uh, that I asked the reason, hey, why, why, why do you want to use it? Just to get a, a sense about what, what they, why they, they use it. 
and it's not about the technology, the benefit, or, or all of the stuff. Every one of them uh, uh, told the same answer, which is, I, I PDG brand. Uh, I want to help you. You know, uh, you you're now my friend. So it's all about you know very community, and that's uh, I think the thing that people keep missing is to build the business, not just building the business and growing the numbers and build the technology. You really need to educate your farmers and really building community in order for this to create an impact. You need to show the impact. And that what 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 then be a foundation of the company uh, and, and and for us to now strive uh, to the way that we are right now because we need to build and take part of it and educate the farmers uh, slowly for them to convince, uh, to be convinced enough uh, to use this technology. So that's one. And the second is definitely on the fundraising part and particularly problems is not on the fundraising end because it was so hard. The rejection is really hard and getting to your heart if you do it in the uh, uh, like repetitively whether and you question yourself whether you're uh, on, on the right ideas and, and you, you made the right decision or not. But I think after a while, especially in the very beginning, when you, you run out of cash, that's a crisis, an existential crisis for the company. Uh, uh, we actually reached to a certain point that uh, we only had like eight, eight uh, seven to eight uh, employees at that, but we really ran out of money. Uh, and we and the founders decided uh, not to take a salary at all. And, uh, and then uh, keep doing it for, for nine months. And then we leave it, leave, leaving off a credit card. And then we need to sell everything, uh, every asset that we have until it, it reached to zero. And, and until it reached a certain point then I didn't have any money. The company had no money at all. Then I told to my employees that, hey, I can I pay you this month. But if you still believe in the fishery, I will assure that the money will come next month. So please stay with fishery and come back again next month. And surprisingly, uh, the day after they, they came back, back and then they 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 work normally and then they didn't pay get paid at all uh, on that month, which I which I'm surprised. But but you know going through that process, I mean, fortunately, of course, uh, obviously that if you still there, fortunately, the month after we close the funding round, and then we get a, a big projects and then the rest is history. But getting through that process is also the hard part of it. But of course, of, same with the consumers, uh, the, the, the farmers acquisition that we get the, the strong learnings. From this point of view, I also get the strong learnings. Uh, six months after that, I asked my employees about why they decided to stay because because it was, it was not a good decision for them to stay, right? Uh, whether, do, don't they have any better option? Uh, but they actually had a better option. So some of them uh, received an offer twice of their salary. Uh, uh, some of them received like three times of their salary on their work uh, to the other uh, company. Uh, and I remember also one of this uh, very funny story that uh, my, my employee had a, a long-term uh, relationship with uh, his uh, fiancé back then. And, and the father of uh, his fiancé fiance men mentioned that, hey, oh, you, you work in this company? What company is this? I think if you would like to marry my daughter, you, you have to move and then work in a proper company. Uh, <laughs> and, and his fiancé said that, hey, if you would like to work, uh, to marry me, leave Ifishuri and then uh, choose if between Ifishuri and myself. And he chose Ifishuri, which is so funny. Why he chose Ifishuri? Why were you? I wouldn't choose Ifishuri at all. But the, the type of sacrifice that they uh, made is, is massive. Uh, and I asked, so why, why, why do you guys stay? 
And they said that because I believe in it free and the potential impact that we can we can do. If I work in the other company, it's just you know another company. But if I work in the fishery, then I I can say if fishery has deployed you know, a million units to a million tons, they can probably say, hey, that's that's my baby. I built it from scratch. And and that's creating impact to many farms. And that's what what touched me. And then that's also I created as a foundation of building the company. The mission needs to be there. The impact needs to be there. Uh, everyone needs to understand that this is what we, we want to do. It's not just building products and building a company. We want to, to change something. We want to build something. We want to uh, create a better life for, for a lot of people. And that's the way that we shape the company uh, that came in from the hardest, uh, the lowest point of, uh, of, of our uh, company and in my life as well. That is fantastic stories. Thank you so much for sharing that. Just a last question, Gibran. If you look at the future, what is your dream going forward the next few years? And also maybe tie it into how important you think aquaculture is in the general food puzzle, because obviously aquaculture is a very sustainable way to secure that people get enough food on their plates. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, for, for the next foreseeable future, we think that aquaculture will uh, play a pivotal role in that. Because for, for one thing, right? I think, uh, the the major uh, protein uh, source uh, right now, uh, aquaculture is fish is probably the only remaining ones that is still wild captured because you know beef, chicken, and the other uh, like rice or, or bread and all of the fish that we eat on our plate is all farm. It's no longer wild captured, but fish is still probably close to fifty percent wild captured. And if humanity ever shows us anything, we will move from hunter to farmer. So there will only be upside in aquaculture. It's still that it will play a big, big role on that. And of course, I think you, you're still familiar, uh, you're very familiar with all of the story that uh, this is a sustainable way to do that. But I think the way that aquaculture needs to be approached because it's structured uh, on the landscape that it is right now, it can't be designed as a particularly integrated business, particularly for the tropical part of it. Because we, I, I can't see that uh, like shrimp farming and fish farming, especially in, in the part of Asia, it's a consolidated the way that salmon farming or poultry industry uh, shape because, because it won't be either sustainable uh, and won't be a feasible operation. So, uh, any technology solutions in the company that can consolidate the market without replacing the small holders, small scale farmers uh, would, would win the market. And that's what I believe uh, in. So I think over foreseeable futures, you can see the small scale farmers not replaced by the big large companies that create a particularly integrated business, but they will then be uh, equipped by ecosystem players that they can grow their livelihood and grow, grow their scale uh, on, uh, in order to do that. So that's, uh, that's uh, the second uh, part of it. And the third, I think it's more like a longer term. Uh, in Indonesia, a lot of uh, farming is still land-based farming, uh, but I think over the next 20, 30, 50 years, we can uh, see more offshore uh, farming uh, uh, and in, in a high value product and more capital intensive the way that it, it, it is uh, in uh, salmon uh, industry. Uh, so I believe that it will uh, go through that way because that's the most sustainable and feasible way for us to uh, uh, produce uh, 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 seafood. And I think the last part is on the, the sustainable uh, uh, part of it. I think 
is necessary not just uh, as a as a uh, as a uh, additional like premium or uh, or jargon that the sustainability is important, but I think it's a necessary uh, at some point that every fish farming and shrimp farming needs to be sustainable, and and any technology, any processes, any company that can build that sustainability and providing us uh, an acceleration on sustainable practice would win the market as well. Uh, and that's what, what I believe. So I think uh, in general, I strongly believe I have my own bias, of course, but I strongly believe aquaculture would be uh, the uh, playing the most important sustainable protein source over the next uh, 50 years. I definitely agree on that. And Gibran, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. If you like this episode and the content we produce, you need to check out our newsletter called the Fransen and Wohnheim Letter. You can find more information in the show notes. And also, if you want to see this episode, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Wohnheim. See you next time.